of this passage of scripture, again, setting before us the need, the urgent need to give heed to the word of God in a dark place. Well, the first thing I want to set before you then from this passage of scripture is the reality of this world is a dark place. (coughs) Excuse me this morning. (coughs) It is kind of interesting that the word for dark here is a word that occurs only here in the New Testament. It's not what we would call the normal word of darkness that has reference to maybe the darkness of night or maybe to something of a, a shaded area or anything like that. But really, the word darkness here is some, somewhat, somewhat unusual. As I said, it occurs only here in the New Testament. And it really has the idea of a, of a gloomy place. It has the idea of something of a, of a dank a dungeon. It really uh, references not so much the lack of light, but what the effects of the lack of light long term in a place are. If you've been in any place where there's been no sunlight or any place where there's been uh, uh, no ventilation, uh, that place becomes very dank, uh, again, dungeon-like. And that's the word that uh, Peter is using here to describe the present age in which we live. The dark place is this dank dungeon in which we live. Let me give you some information here by way of what this word means. The word, uh, the word dark, uh, excuse me, the word dark here means to be uh, squalid. It has the idea of being dirty and miserable, dark and miserable is, is, uh, is, the, is the connotation of the word. Now, again, when the word is strictly applied uh, outside of the New Testament, it describes the squalor and, do- and gloom of a dungeon. And what we see here is this. Is this is Peter's description of the world in which we live. And this is not new to us. And while the word itself, by way of uh, uh, this, the, uh, this, the, the uniqueness of the word, may add an element to our understanding of this world as a dark place, that the world is a dark place, we all know. We know and understand that we live in a, a world that is darkened by sin. We know and we understand that we live in a world that where humanity in its fallen state would rather rejoice in darkness rather than light. We read this in, in John, uh, in the Gospel of John, don't we? That light came into the world. This is the condemnation that light came into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. So we know that the, that the world is a dark place. I find it very interesting, however, that oftentimes when we as preachers or we as Christians uh, talk about the world as a dark place, one of the things that we overlook, that we should not overlook, is that while this world is morally and spiritually a dark place, we cannot deny, and we should not deny, that we do live in a day of great advancements. I was thinking along these lines, you know, concerning uh, quite a few of our sisters in Christ whom, whom we've been praying for. We've been praying for, for Bess, and we've been praying for Judy. We've been praying for Carol. Now stop and think what it would be if our dear sisters and we at, with our dear sisters lived in a day and age where we did not have the kind of medical advances that they are benefiting from right now. And what I'm trying to say is essentially this, that while the world is a spiritually dark place, there are elements in this world by way of scientific advancement that many would look excuse me again, that many would look at as being marks of great advancement. And they would even talk about the light of science. And when we talk about the world as a dark place, we're not denying that. But what we are saying is this, whatever light science has brought to humanity, and there's a sense in which there have always been advancements in in in, in the situations in which people have lived. There's always been the going forward, uh, the, the forward progress of, uh, of human intellect. 
But that is not added to or taken away the spiritual darkness that man is under. Sin is still a real power in the lives of fallen man. Sin is still a, 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 a thing that we as Christians even have to be aware of. Sin is still that which, which darkens this world. And so when we talk about the world as a dark place, it doesn't mean that there haven't been advancements made. It doesn't mean that there won't be advancement ma- advancements made. But what it does mean is this, that the darkness that the Scripture speaks about is a spiritual and moral darkness that can only be cleared away by the light of the Gospel. And that's something of a challenge to us because we have many, maybe of our friends or maybe, maybe our antagonists, who when we talk about the light of the gospel will come back with some of these scientific advances that that the world has enjoyed. And they'll say to us, get out of the stone age. We're not in the stone age. We're in the age of light. And it's the light of the gospel. And man still needs this light, this precious light. And that's why Peter says, you do well to take heed to this prophetic word as a light that shines in a dark place. He doesn't mean that he wasn't living in a day where advances were being made. Every day in which the church will find itself, advances will still be uh, being made. But the darkness that's being spoken of here is not a darkness of an of intellectual uh, light, we might say, or of scientific darkness. It's a darkness of more of a moral and spiritual nature. And we see that darkness, don't we, even among those who seem to be most advanced among us. Why is it that no matter how far society advances scientifically, morally, it just seems to get worse and worse? The last two or three weeks in the news, we've been bombarded with moral and spiritual darkness, haven't we? And, they, and, and it's taken place among some of the most quote-unquote enlightened people of our day. This moral darkness is there. And so the light that is shining is a light that clears away the dank, damp darkness, the squalor of a moral, spiritual dungeon that humanity finds itself in. Aren't you glad for that light? Aren't you glad that you have that light in your hands? Aren't you glad that you have that light in your, in, in your heart? Oh, thank God for this light. And so, as I said before, uh, the, the, the idea that, uh, uh, of darkness here. I want to read a quote uh, uh, by a commentator. And he's, uh, I don't know exactly when he lived. He didn't live too long ago, but I, I'm sure it's over 100 years or so ago. And listen to what he says. He says, they were not wanting then any more than now. Talent and genius, education, arts and sciences, philosophy, poetry, all the elements of a high secular civilization. But this, though men call it glory, is not the light of life. It has no power whatever to expiate guilt, to cleanse the heart from an evil conscience, to renew man after the image in which he was created, and to raise into a blessed, secure, and everlasting fellowship with the infinite God. With the infinite God. You see... And so why, why am I bringing this out? Because I don't want you to, to have such a view of the world in which we live that you can't see and appreciate the gifts that God gives by way of advances in society, but also not to confuse the advances that society makes in science and other things to confuse that with the light of the gospel. You see, the most advanced people of our day still need the light of the gospel. People, and I'm not saying this to, to kind of create any kind of antagonism uh, in your mind uh, toward the, those who, who seem to be advanced in our day. Even the most advanced people in our day who would look down their nose at us still need the light of the gospel that you have within your breast and that we have within God's holy word. So again, the world is a dark place. But we also know that, that our hearts can be a dark place, don't we? I mean, I hate to say it, sometimes we're shocked at how dark our hearts can still seem to be, are we not? 
there are things in our hearts where we say, where did that come from? How was that still there? And we have to deal with these things. And again, the scriptures bring this out, doesn't it? We have, again, two passages of scripture from, uh, from the Apostle Paul, Romans one i I'm sure many of you know this. But because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. You hear in this uh, passage of Romans, many of you are aware that we have this kind of principle that we see repeatedly in the scripture, that oftentimes God judges sin with sin. It's unsettling, isn't it? That when a society is intent on going on its path in sin, and by way of reproof and by way of correction, not turning from its sin, there's a sense in which God says, You want your sin, you will be judged by your sin. And the scripture says here, their foolish hearts were darkened. This happens in individual lives. This happens in societies as well. Another passage of scripture, Paul says in Ephesians 4, uh, verse 18, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. You see, the heart of man is a dark place. But the gospel shines in the heart, doesn't it? I think it's one of the encouraging things about this passage of Scripture that the Apostle Peter is able to say that the day star has shined in your hearts. You see, the light of the gospel comes in and gives to us this, its saving power. And not only are there the, the, the ideas of, uh, of the moral uh, issues in, the, in, in, uh, in society, the, the moral issues within the heart, sometimes there is a darkness that is not so much a, a moral darkness, but it's just a, a, a darkness of... Of, of, of the uncertainty of things that plague the mind. Questions. Questions that we don't have answers for or we don't seem to have answers for. And then we go to the word of God and what happens? God shines light on our questions by the word. Why is it? It's because the word of God again is a lamp that shines in a dark place no matter where that dark place is or no matter what that dark place is. The word of God is able to bring its saving light to it and we are thankful and we praise God for that. Now what's interesting is that as Paul, excuse me, as Peter is is working this passage of scripture, one of the things that he's doing, you remember how he starts out in verse 19, he says this, We have also a more sure word of prophecy. We have also a more sure, sure word of prophecy. Now, it's very clear that Peter is picking up uh, the points that he was making in verses, uh, in verses uh, uh, 17 and 18. And you remember the points that he was making in verses 17 and 18. He had referred to the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ on what he refers to as the Holy Mount when he had seen Christ transfigured and when he had heard with his own ears the voice of the Father. And it was in that, you remember, where Peter was able to say, we've not followed cunningly devised fables, and you remember how we treated the passage last week, but rather we have followed divinely attested truths. Not cunningly devised fables, divinely attested truths. And now what Peter is doing in verse 19, he's picking up on that idea. And he's saying then, we have a more sure word of prophecy. I've told you about this manifestation of, 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 of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember that transfiguration is something of a, of a forward glimpse of what's going to happen at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming again in glory. There was a glimpse of that glory on the Holy Mount. And Peter is saying again, we have a more sure word of testimony. Well, this little phrase, a more sure word of prophecy, 
is one of the more memorable phrases uh, that we have in our in, in the King James Bible. I'm sure many of you can remember or have heard that phrase, and that phrase is very familiar to you, a more sure word of prophecy. The question is, though, is what is Peter actually referring to here when he talks about this more sure word of prophecy? I think the ESV may have, we have the prophetic word made more sure. And a question arises at this point is, as to exactly what is the point of emphasis that Peter is trying to make here. Is Peter saying that because of the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ and the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, does that mean that now on the basis of God's verification that the prophetic word is made even more sure than what it was? Many go along those lines and there's much to be said for that approach to this passage of Scripture. Another way of looking at this passage of scripture is along the following lines. Peter is saying that we've had this phenomenal, this, this, this awe-inspiring experience where we were on the Holy Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ was transfigured before us, and the voice of God the Father was heard. And even though that was the case, we have a more sure word of prophecy in the scripture. Now, this is, a very difficult, this is a very difficult matter to settle. It really is. And in one sense, I hate that I don't, I don't want to be anticlimactic here, but in one sense, it doesn't matter because whatever the emphasis is, the point is that we have to take heed to the word of prophecy made more sure. But I do want to interact with this idea for a little bit. First of all, if Peter is meaning that because of the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ and the voice of the Father heard on the Holy Mount, that the word of prophecy is made more sure. It's one of these instances where we have God confirming his word. And God does that, doesn't he? God confirms his word. You know, I think of those places in the scripture over and over again where we see uh, the, the, this emphasis on it was, uh, this was done in order that it might be fulfilled. I mean, it's, 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 it's repeated throughout the Word of God. I, I only uh, set down a couple of uh, uh, passages of Scripture uh, where we might see this. But the idea is that over and over again, we have this emphasis. John fifteen twenty five. But this cometh the pass, that the Word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. John 17, uh, verse uh, 12. While I was with them, I kept them in thy name that thou hast given, that, that that, excuse me, I have kept in thy name those that thou hast given me, that, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. I think if you look in the uh, Gospel of, uh, of Matthew, eight times Matthew says that the scripture might be fulfilled. So God does confirm his word by bringing the past that which he promised. We see this in other cases as well, that not only does God confirm his word by way of bringing the past that which he's promised, there was also there were also times in the in the history of God's revelation to humanity where God took special effort. That's not the right way to say it, where God made a made it a particular point to confirm his word by way of miracle. And we see this in a number of places as well in um, 
I think the most significant is, is in, in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where we have in verse 4 of Romans 1 about the Lord Jesus Christ, it is said that he, he is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. How does God confirm Christ's claim to be the Son of God? He confirms it by the miracle, the resurrection. I, I, I love this passage of Scripture because I believe it's one of these places in the Word of God where God is actually quote-unquote, preaching. But in this passage of Scripture in Romans 1, verse 4, he's not preaching audibly. He's preaching by way of sign. He's showing his power. So God does confirm his word. We see in other places as well where, where Paul says at the end of Romans, he says, through, my, through mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Oh, I'm sorry for the Elrichium, uh, I'm sorry. Wonders and divers, miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. I'm sorry. Um, I, I just, um, forgive me here for a minute. That was, um, that was Hebrews 2, 4. I conflated Romans 15 and Hebrews 2. Let me give you Hebrews 2. God also bearing them witness both by signs and wonders and divers, miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own word. What do we see happening here? God is giving witness to what was said. How? By way of the, by way of the exercise of these miracles. And so again, God is confirming his word. He confirms his word by what he brings to pass. He confirms his word by way of the exertion of divine power. And so this is what's happening here. So we see that, again, this is one of those cases in, in and through the transfiguration where God was confirming his word. But let's say for a moment that maybe what Peter is really trying to emphasize is that even in light of the fact that the transfiguration took place, we have even a greater word of prophecy, more sure than even the experience on the mount. Now you can see the difficulties here because what can be greater in one sense than the fact that on the mount, Jesus was transfigured and the Father spoke. In one sense, it appears as though nothing can be higher than that. But from another perspective, that God would so exalt his word is not surprising to us at all. You heard the opening passage of scripture that we read. Psalm 138 verse 2. I have honored my word and my name above all things. God has no qualms about asserting the greatness of his word, even equating it with his own holy nature. So the point is this. The question is not resolved, at least by me in this sermon. I have to admit I like the second view a little better. I like the view that the, that the word of God is even more foundational and even more sure than even my most deep spiritual experiences. I genuinely believe that. I could tell you about spiritual experiences, but I'm not in this pulpit to tell you about my spiritual experiences. I'm here to tell you what the word of God has to say. You see, there's a more sure word of prophecy than my spiritual experiences. And so again, there's a sense in which I'm, I'm inclined to go along that way. But I also have to admit this: that the, that the majority of excuse me, the majority of commentators do see it along the first lines. That what Peter is saying is essentially this: since the transfiguration took place, since the Lord Jesus Christ was transfigured in front of them, since the Father spoke, this confirms the prophetic word. And no matter how we look at it, the point is essentially the same that it is this prophetic word that you and I need to give heed to. 
And so that's the next thing that I want to consider with you. I want to consider that this prophetic word that is given to us in a dark place is a prophetic word that you and I need to give heed to. It's interesting, uh, uh, one of the things that we see as to the reasons why. You know, when we, just if I can come back to uh, the idea of, of, uh, of the Father speaking on the, uh, on the Holy Mount there, one of the very interesting things to, 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 to realize, and we don't see this as we first read it, but did, did you ever stop to consider, or did it ever enter into your study or thinking, that when God the Father said on the Holy Mount, this is my beloved Son, and whom I am well pleased, that there, are, that there are actually three passages of Old Testament Scripture that God the Father is quoting. It's amazing. God is quoting His own Word. This is my beloved Son. This is taken from Psalm chapter 2. Again, we have the reference to the, the whole splendor of the Messianic Psalm, uh, Psalm 2, where, where God's anointed will reign. This is my beloved one. This is taken from Genesis chapter 22, verse 2. That picture that we have with uh, Abraham offering up his son, his only son, his son that he loved. The father saying, this is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. This is a, this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 42. Consider my servant, the one in whom my soul delights. God the father on the holy mount speaking scripture. God the Father on the Holy Mount preaching about His Son through the written Word. Do you see why we do what we do? We preach Christ from the Scriptures. Why? That's what God the Father would do if He were here. It's amazing, isn't it? It almost sounds arrogant to suggest what God the Father would do. But here we have on the Holy Mount, what is He doing? He's pointing to His Son through the written Scripture. Oh, we thank God for His Word. And that's why Peter says, again, we have this, this more sure word of prophecy, this word of prophecy made sure. Now, if we were going on to verses 20 and 21, you would see why we're going along these lines. And the reason why is because Peter is going to very quickly say that the reason why we have this, this sure word of prophecy is because prophecy doesn't come about by an individual's own desire or his own will. The prophecy is specifically given by God himself. And this leads me to another question before, before we move on. And forgive me for having to peel back here. But this leads me to another question. What does Peter mean when he says uh, the, the, the word of prophecy made more sure? Well, again, it's another one of these situations where I have to set two potential explanations before you. And I hope that this doesn't, uh, uh, this doesn't weary you in, in me doing this. But the two ways of understanding the word of prophecy are in, in, are in its specific sense what well, we might say its immediate context and within its larger context. Now, in the immediate context, the word of prophecy is specifically that word that has reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter, this is huge. Again, in 2 Peter chapter 3, I think it's verses 13 and 14, he's going to make reference to the fact that the scoffers mock the idea of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Here in 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, he is emphasizing that this great prophetic truth that our Lord is returning is indeed a light whereby we do well to take heed. In other words, he is bringing to bear in our thinking our conduct in this present world in light of the certain fact that Jesus Christ is going to return. That's, that's, that, that's the emphasis. That's where he's going. That's the immediate context of it. But in the more general sense... Most commentators are agreeing, again, 
almost across the board, that when Peter uses that little phrase, a more short word of prophecy, it has all the larger implications of the totality of the word of God. In other words, that prophecy here is that aspect of divine special revelation where God is making known his saving purposes in and through the Holy Scriptures. And there's a passage in, in, the, uh, in the book of Revelation that kind of points in this direction. It's a passage of scripture that sometimes we, we can't catch the meaning of it uh, as it's written in the uh, uh, as it's written in the King James. Um, but there is uh, and even some of our other uh, what we might call, you know, first line uh, translation. Sometimes it makes it a little difficult. But the passage is this. This is how it reads in, uh, in the English Standard Version. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. John is writing. He says, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. This was an angel. He was falling down. But he said to me, uh, you must not do that. I am your fellow servant and with, with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Now listen to what the angel says. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Again, it's one of these passages I remember hearing very early in my Christian life. The testimony of prophecy is the spirit of Jesus. And it's one of those, again, it's, it's a memorable phrase that sticks with you. Never really took a while to fully understand what John was trying to say. Another translation translates it along the following lines. It says this. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said unto me, Forbear, for I am the servant of God, as you and your brothers, as you as you, as you and your brethren are, that bear testimony to Jesus. Worship God. Now here is the point. For to give testimony of Jesus is the very design of prophecy. I think that is much closer to the intent of what's being said in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. To give testimony to Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When the Father speaks on the holy mount, what does he do? He gives testimony to Jesus. When the church speaks to a fallen world, what does it do? It gives testimony to Jesus. When the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of himself, what does he do? He gives testimony to himself. And so what we see here is this, is that prophecy, whether it is in the very specific sense of Second Peter here, referencing the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, or whether we see it in its, in its larger context, the revelation that God has given in the, in, in the word, it all revolves around the person of Jesus. Why? Because the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. You see, that's the purpose of the word of God, to point to Jesus Christ. And so again, this prophetic word that is made uh, more sure. And so again, it's made more sure in, the day of, in, in, in this day and age in which we live by way of the confirmation that we see and by way of its very nature as coming from God. But what we're seeing here also that Peter is reminding us that this, this, uh, this, this, this word of prophecy is a light. He says this, you do well to take heed to, to this light. And again, this is another um, a concept that we're all very, very familiar with. Uh, we're familiar with the fact that the world is a dark place. We're also familiar with the fact that the scripture is light. And this is something that we see over and over in the word of God. That famous passage, that passage that many of us have memorized, Psalm 119, uh, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And we, we take the word of God this way, don't we? We use the word of God in that very way. Other times in the, in the scriptures, uh, we see the word of God referred to as a light. And this is something that, again, that is consistent with the nature of scripture because it comes from God. God is light, so his word would give light. 
We see that the we, we see the fact that the, those who were in right relationship with God love the light, whereas those who are antagonistic toward God they kind of, they hate this light. You know, we run into people who don't want anything to do with the scriptures. We run into people who don't want anything to do with the word of God being introduced into a conversation. But the people of God, oh, how they love this light. And so the word of God, again, it is this light, this word of prophecy. It is a light that shines in a, tar- in a dark place. But primarily what I want to set before you, as I said before, is this idea that the scripture, the word of prophecy, the prophetic word made more sure is a word that you and I must give heed to in this present day. Well, what is it to give heed to? As I said before, that little phrase, give heed, take heed, is found 55 times in the King James. It occurs most often, as I said before, in the book of Deuteronomy. We find it very often in the prophetic uh, scriptures. And we also find it on the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says this in Matthew 6, 1. He says, take heed that you do not your alms before men. He says in Matthew 24, verse 4, he says, Take heed that no man deceive you. He says in Luke 11.35, he says, Take heed, and this is very very pertinent to to, to what we're considering here today. He says, Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. Take heed that the light that is in thee be not darkness. Take heed that the thing that you are constructing or directing your life by is not darkness. You see the warnings. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So the idea that we are to give heed to the scripture is very, very important for each and every one of us. But what does it mean to give heed? What's one of these words in one sense that really doesn't have to be defined? But to to help you out a little here, it means to attend to. It means to give attention to. It means to uh, pay close attention to. It means to diligently consider and to consider it very carefully. It means to, to follow something. And so again, the idea is that attention and energy is to be given to the scripture. That's how you and I take heed to it. We don't read it in a, in a, in a, in a dismissing way. We don't sit under the preaching in a dismissing way. We listen and we hear in order to gain something by it. Why? Because it's this very word that gives us light that we must take heed to. Why? Because we live in a spiritually dark place. And so again, the word of God by way of that that we must give heed to. And you know, when you consider the ways in which or the, or the various, uh, or the various uh, uh, experiences of our life that we, we must give heed uh, to the scriptures, I'd suggest three of them to you. Number one, in our personal lives, we must give heed to the scriptures. Why? Because the scriptures show us the way of salvation. We must give heed to the scriptures even while we are saved in order to be happy in God. What do I mean by that? Well, you know that the happy Christian is the holy Christian. And the saddest Christian is the, is the most unsanctified Christian? If a Christian wants to be happy in this world, what does he, he or she do? Live, whole, live a holy life. And so again, we take heed to the word of God in our spiritual lives before God in order, number one, that we might be saved, in order, number two, that we might truly enjoy the presence and the blessing of God in our lives. But there's another way in which we are to take heed to the word of God. And that's in not only our, our, our spiritual lives, but what we might call our, our, our public lives the lives that we live outside of the church, still within the church of Jesus Christ, but outside of the four walls of this church, our public life, our social life, we might say. And you see, we're to take heed to the scripture in that area as well. And the scripture informs us of many things along these lines, doesn't it? It informs us by way of our, of our decision-making in public. It informs us by way of the ethics, by, uh, by way, uh, by way we, uh, of which we direct our lives. It informs us by way of how we treat our fellow man, doesn't it? 
And so again, the word of God is to, is to, is to be taken heed to. Yes, even in my public life. So that when I'm conducting myself in public, it's not I'm a Christian that nobody knows about and I can just live any way I want or treat anybody the way I want. No, I'm a Christian man in a fallen world. And the scripture places a, a duties upon me by way of how I'm to live in a fallen world. And so we must take heed in not only our spiritual lives, we must take heed in our social lives. But thirdly, we must take heed, we must take heed to the word of God in our church life as well. You see, in our church life, we must take heed to the word of God. We must live among the people of God in a way that shows the glory of Christ. We must live among the people of God in a way that shows that the gospel has truly affected the way that we think and the way that we act. We must live among the people of God in such a way as to live consistently with the word of God and what it calls us to do. And so to take heed to the word of God, again, is one of these things that encompasses the whole of life. It encompasses your spiritual life. It encompasses your social life. It encompasses your church life. Oh, may God give us grace to give heed to this light that shines in a dark place. But lastly, what I want to show to you concerning this word, this word of prophecy made more sure, I want to show you that it points to a great day that is yet coming. And not merely a great day that is yet coming, but a great Savior who is coming again for his people. Isn't this a wonderful thing? You see what Peter says here in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 19. We also have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well to take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Now this is a very interesting passage of scripture for two reasons. Here we are with these two reasons again. But it's an interesting passage of scripture for two reasons. Number one, there is an objective reality that's being referred to here. And that is the second coming of our Savior. Here it's put in something of a poetic form. It's referred to, the second coming of our Lord is referred to as the day star arising. Now, all the commentators make the case that the day star is, is really that planet Venus that is the first to reflect the sun as it's coming up over the horizon. That's like the last star that you see uh, before the daylight. That's why it's called the day star because once that bright star is shining, which is really the reflection off of the planet Venus, then uh, daylight is, is, is right around the corner, we might say. And there's a sense in which that's what our Lord is viewed, at, is viewed as. He is viewed as this one who will, who, who, who will dispel the darkness. You see, right now we are in a day of darkness. And what must we do? We must take heed to the word of God. But there is coming that time, that day, when those lamps that really reflect the living word, the written word that reflects the living word, that lamp will be outshone by the glory of the returning Son of God himself. And that's an objective reality. But did you see what Peter says? He says this. I love it. He says, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Well, what's this? If Jesus is coming objectively, if Jesus is coming factually, if Jesus is coming in one sense outside of me, what's all this about the day star arising in my heart? I think Peter is picking up one of the essential elements of what we might call vital, experiential Christianity. So that the second coming of Jesus Christ is not just a point of prophetic scriptures. 
It is the return of my Savior to redeem me from this dark world. It is the return of your Savior to redeem you from this dark world. It is the objective reality that has been so embraced by the believer that that it has become a subjective force within his soul. The day star arising in your hearts. This idea again, Jesus Christ embraced not just at an intellectual level, but Jesus Christ embraced so personally, so tenderly, so possessively, if I can put it that way, that when I speak about Jesus Christ returning, it's not just the return of the Lord of glory. It is that. But it's the return of my precious Savior for me. It's the return of your precious Savior for you. You see this living Christ coming back for his church. And that's why Peter says, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Well, my brothers and sisters, here is the combination, if I can put it this way, of the beauty and the reality of experiential Christianity with its firm basis on a word of prophecy that's made more sure. Made more sure by the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the way that God confirms his word in human history, yes, but also more sure because of what it is in and of its own nature. It is that word that is given by God himself to be a light for you and me to walk through this dark world. And so as we see the darkness around us, as we, in one sense, hate and maybe even fear the darkness within, let us make sure that we take this light of the gospel and apply it to every element of our lives, to our personal lives for salvation, to our social lives for our neighbors, to our church life, for our brothers and sisters, for all things, to the glory of our great God and Savior, who is coming for his own. Let's pray. Our Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, grant us grace, we pray, to live according to this this more sure word of prophecy. Help us, we pray, Father, to be able to embrace uh, within our thinking uh, that word of prophecy as having a specificity to the return of our Savior. But also, Father, help us to be large-minded enough to understand that the word of prophecy is your word that is spoken to every situation that we find ourselves in. Grant these things, Father, we ask, and we pray this in Jesus' name.